Well, we're in the book of Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 7. And we're going to take a look at the whole chapter. Okay, Mark chapter 7. Now, I entitled this message, How Do You Approach God? You know, when I was eight years old, my mother took my brother Rick and I to, we had this local market right down the street. It was called the Easy Market. And it was about the size of a 7-Eleven, but they had groceries and stuff in it. So in a pinch, you know, when you're running out of stuff, my mom used to take us there, but they had this one aisle and it was full of candy. And so I would always sneak away. And this one time I went down the candy aisle and they had bazooka bubble gum. And I took a whole fan, handful of it and I put it in my pocket. I stole it. And so we went home and I went right to my bedroom and I opened up that first piece. And I don't know if you remember, but bazooka's kind of hard at first and then it gets soft, you know. And so I started to chew the gum and my mom opened the door and looked in and saw me chewing this bubble gum. She said, where'd you get the bubble gum? Of course, I lied. And I said, well, a friend gave it to me. And she started pressing me and I gave in, I caved in and I said, no, it was, I stole it from the easy market. Well, this put into a whole series of events that I've never stolen again, right? <laughs> First, I got a spanking, right? Then when my, when my dad got home, he said, you're going to be put on restriction, and I got a week's worth of restriction. Then I was taken back to the easy market, and I had to turn in all the rest of the bubble gum and tell the manager that I was sorry and that I stole the gun. And then my mom did something that I didn't expect, we were attending a Catholic church, and she took me to the church, and I had to stand in line for confession, right? And it was this little room that you had to walk into, and there was a hard wooden seat, and when you got in there, it was kind of dark. They had this sliding, like, panel, and you really couldn't see the priest on the other side, but you basically had to say, I'm sorry, Father, for my sin, and then he gives you something to do so that you could be forgiven. And he gave me ten Hail Marys. And I remember I went out and I knelt down and I prayed the Ten Hail Marys and then I could go home. Well, the reason I share that particular story, the scriptures, it's very important how we approach God. Very important. And I want to ask you a question up front. What gives you the right to approach an all-holy God? What do you think gives you access to Him? And so I want you to think through, because we're going to answer this question today, how do you approach God? How do you approach God? Well, our text is Mark chapter 7, and we're going to take it in segments. So Mark chapter 7, verses 7, verses 1 through 8. Mark 7, verses 1 through 8. And the Pharisees and some, some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But they eat their bread with impure hands. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But in vain do you worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. 
So how do you approach God? The first thing we'll see is a person cannot approach God through rituals. No ritual of any kind gives you access to a holy God. Now, leading up to this chapter in review, guys, Jesus is all about change. Jesus comes on the scene, and what he does is he enacts something called the new covenant. That's what he's bringing, and that is about a radical change into the system that was in place. As a matter of fact, when Jesus first comes in in Mark chapter 1, it says that he comes out preaching the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says, And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, the Greek word for gospel is, is called euangelion, and it's really two words. It's angelos, which means messenger, and the word u means joy. So what Jesus did is he brought news that brings great joy. Okay, but it's more than that. When Mark said that he brought the gospel, you need to understand this word gospel meant something in the first century. It meant history-changing news. As a matter of fact, there's an inscription right at the time that Jesus was alive And it said, the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And it meant the coronation and the ushering in of Caesar Augustus as emperor. And so it's history-changing news. So when Jesus says, I bring the gospel, it is the gospel that changes things, the gospel that changes history. And so that's it. When Jesus comes on the scene, he starts doing things that absolutely stuns the religious community, doesn't he? He starts performing miracles and things, and he even does things on the Sabbath that they just can't understand. Why? Because he wants them to know that now things have changed. It is a new covenant. The old is passing away. So these Jewish leaders from Jerusalem, they show up, and they see his disciples eating without clean hands. And that really upsets them because you have to understand the cleanliness laws. If you have any infectious disease, if you've touched any dead person or animal, if you have any kind of a boil, if you eat food that is not kosher, you are considered impure and unclean. So when they see that his disciples are eating something without washed hands, they're like, wait a minute, that is sin. But we're going to see Jesus confront these guys. And he's going to confront them in three areas. Their religious rituals, their man-made traditions, and their moral behavior. And guys, I got to tell you, I, I don't think these religious leaders are that much different than many people in church. There are many people in church today that may claim Jesus, but they live in legalism. So the Pharisees and some of the scribes, they're upset. And they come to Jesus and they complain to him. Look at verses 1 and 2. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him and they come from Jerusalem and had seen some of his disciples were eating bread with impure hands. That is unwashed. They need to understand that this tradition of washing or this ritual of washing really was from Exodus chapter 30. I want to read it to you. Exodus 30 verses 18 through 20. And you shall also make a labor of bronze with its base for bronze for washing And you shall put it between the tin of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. 
Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and feet from it. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. This originally was only for the priests to wash. But as Jews who wanted to be more pious, they began to adopt that as a tradition for everybody. And so they made this man-made tradition and they adopted it for all the people and says, everybody has to wash their hands now. Originally, it was just for those who were serving as priests. And so right here, the Pharisees make a really big deal about a man-made ritual, not an actual commandment of God. And what you want to understand is you can't just clean up your act and go before God. Look at verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with impure hands. So verse 1 tells us that these guys are from Jerusalem. These are hitmen from Jerusalem, right? These are the religious guys that come down from Jerusalem. They're trying to catch Jesus. And then what Jesus does, he confronts them. And he hits them with a quotation from Isaiah. This is Isaiah 29, 13. He says to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. See, in this legalistic society, these guys took these man-made rituals, these man-made traditions, and they made them into an oral law. And they actually gave more credence to the oral law than they did to the written word of God. And they began to rely more on that than what God said directly in his word. Now, we have some rituals in the church, don't we, that we follow. And they're actually good. One is baptism, right? When a person comes to Christ, what do we do? We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why do we do that? Well, Jesus commanded, when you go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We also have the ritual of communion, the Lord's table, which we did last week, right? Communion, a time of celebration. At the Last Supper, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, you know, do this in remembrance of me and the cup, right? He said, this is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Both those rituals are evidence of a change that's already taken place. We do them because we know that we've been changed and we do them out of an expression of our love but that's different than what these guys were doing. They are saying that the ritual itself is what opens the doors. The ritual is what you need to cleanse yourself. They're not following the word. They've developed their own. And Jesus calls them what? He calls them hypocrites. Now, a hypocrite is a play actor. It's somebody that wears a mask when you're in front of everybody, but you're a totally different person. He says, with their lips they honor me, but what? The heart. The heart is what is far away. And so Jesus is going to take them and draw them in. He says, they've neglected the the commandment of God and they've held to the tradition of men. He's saying, they're saying things with their lips, but their heart is so, so far away. And guys, I meet legalists all the time, but they're in the church all the time. You ever met a TV legalist? You have a TV, you're in sin. Right? How about a clothing legalist? You don't wear certain things or you do wear certain things. Uh, uh, uh. How about tattoo legalists? Right? You got a tattoo, man. You're out of the kingdom of God. Legalism 
is not what honors God. Now, the Bible is very clear. There's two ways to approach God. Example A is you're like the Pharisees. You've got to be perfect. You've got to live this life. You've got to toe the line. You've got to be on that treadmill. But we all know we can't do it. So God had to institute another way. And that's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came preaching a new covenant. Jesus came to free us from the bondage of legalism. Jesus came to make himself the one who's going to be righteous because we can't. And when we accept him, we get his righteous standing before God and we're justified. You know, I read a, an article, believe it or not, in the 2006 Journal of Air and Waste Management. <laughs> Why would I read that? Because it really fit <laughs> this message. But it was really interesting. It said that there was a study conducted by the National Science Foundation on the side effects of indoor air purifiers and that certain ionic air purifiers actually produce pollution. And here's how it works. An ionic air purifier, what it does is it charges airborne particles in a process known as ionization. And these charged particles, then they stick to metal electrodes in the machine, and theoretically the air is cleaner because they emit with less particles attached. But here's the problem. They also produce a gas called ozone. Now, ozone is great when it's way up in the air and it's protecting against UV rays, but down here we call that smog. And so these machines actually produce so much ozone that in many cases that they studied, they were the same in the house as a, a, a second stage smog alert. So, so here's what the acting chairperson of the California Air and Resources Boat Board said. He said, these machines are insidious, marketed as a strong defense against indoor air pollution. They emit ozone, the same chemical that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has been trying to eliminate from our air for decades. Bringing these Trojan horses home and what was meant to help them is actually killing them. And guys, this is exactly the same thing that we try to do when we try to make ourselves pure before God. We're relying on this work as if this is going to give us the access to God, help us to approach God instead of His Son, which He sent. And we become just like these scribes and Pharisees. Now, some of you are going to object here and say, wait a minute, Pastor Rob, we're Calvary Chapel people. We understand we're saved by the grace of God. That's great, and I pray that's the case, but I meet people all the time in this church, and they live with what I call a guilt-shame complex, right? I've done something bad today, so God is very mad at me, and I'm guilty. Oh, I'll clean up my act. I'll live a good life. Now God will accept me. But they don't look to the one in whom they're accepted by. And it's only through Jesus Christ alone. And our faith remains there, not in ourselves. So a person cannot approach God through rituals. Second thing, a person cannot approach God through man-made traditions. This is verses 9 through 16. A person's man-made religious tradition does not necessarily please God. Let's read the text. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, 
And he who speaks evil of his father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you, it's Corban. That is to say, given already to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. Thus, invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. And after he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things that proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Hey, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Okay. When a tradition takes the place of real worship, it becomes a dangerous thing. Guys, we have many traditions in our family that I love. One of them is Christmas Eve, right? We come here for Christmas Eve service. We gather a whole bunch of people, my family and friends, and we go home and Karen makes this hot stew and we put it in bread bowls and we gather together. I love that tradition. But when a tradition takes the place of the Word of God, it becomes a dangerous thing. And there are traditions within the church that actually honor God. I mean, Paul commended the Thessalonians. Let me read it for you. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by mouth or by letter from us. But a tradition should never take the place of the worship of God that we have because and through Jesus Christ and what is spelled out clearly in the word of God. And these religious leaders in Jesus' day, they so burdened the people with man-made traditions that they no longer could even see the word of God clearly. And these traditions, you know, I think they began well. I think the heart of it was right because what they wanted to do with the tradition was build a fence, if you will, around the law to try to keep the people from sinning. That was the point. But over time, they turned into kind of an absurd view of what you had to do just to be able to present yourself to God. And many of them centered around the Sabbath. I want to read for you some of the absurdities about the Sabbath that the Jews believed. One thing you couldn't do with the Sabbath is to look into a mirror. Because if you looked into a mirror on the Sabbath and you saw a gray hair, you might be tempted to pull it out and that was considered work. You could not have false teeth in on the Sabbath. Why? Because if the false teeth fell out, you'd be tempted to pick it up and that would be labor. You couldn't carry a burden on the Sabbath, even a handkerchief, because they said that that would be carrying a load And that was considered sin. And on and on the absurdities goes when the traditions of men begin to replace the word of God. So these religious leaders are setting aside the word of God. And Jesus says, you are experts in setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep what? Your tradition. And Paul gives us a warning in Colossians 2.8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men according to the elementary principles of this world rather than than to Christ. So what Jesus does is he sets these guys up and then he hits them with the fifth commandment. Look at the text, verses 10 through 13. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of his father and mother, he is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father and mother, 
Whatever I have that would help you. Oh, by the way, that's Corbin. That is, say, I've already given it to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Every Jew understood the fifth commandment. They understood it was their responsibility to honor their father and mother, to help them as they grew older, to be there for them. But instead what they did, they said, you know what, I I really don't want to give them any money or any help. So I'm going to say, I know, I gave it to God. I'm out. They took a tradition of men so that they wouldn't have to honor what God commanded. Look at verses 14 through 16. And after he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you understand this, there is nothing outside of the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things that proceed out of the man, that's what defiles the man. If anybody has an ear, you've got to hear this, is what he's saying. Jesus did a radical shift on these guys right here. Vincent Taylor, he's, he's one of the commentators I read. This is what he said. He, he wrote a commentary called The Gospel According to St. Mark. He said, in laying down the principle that uncleanliness comes from within and not from without, it frees Christianity from, from the law of legalism. And William Barclay said, this is the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. See, the Pharisees thought it's the stuff that I do that pleases God. And God is saying, no, 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 no. I'm looking at the heart. You need a changed heart. The fact is, your heart's bad, really bad. The natural man's heart, you cannot come into the presence of God. And these guys keep trying to clean up their act through legalism and acts and traditions and rituals and these kind of things, but they never really address the sin issue in the heart. These guys had the wrong idea of the nature of sin and personal holiness. Now Jesus said that if a man looks at a woman with sin, it's lust, heart issue. If you look at somebody with anger, it's murder, heart issue. And this is what he says in Matthew 5, verse 20. He says, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses these scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. These guys were the cleanest guys around. These guys were the guys that were trying to do it all right. And he's telling people, wait a minute, no. Unless your righteousness actually surpasses theirs, you will not see the kingdom. This is what it says in 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's a heart issue, guys. We don't come to God through our traditions. We don't come to God through rituals that we perform. He is looking at our heart. And Jesus is dealing not with their external behavior, but with the internal motivations here. And what happens as believers, as as Christians, those of us that have put our faith in Christ, it's easy to begin to drift away from just a solid faith and trusting Christ that that's how we have access to God. And we fall into two categories. As we become aware of God's holy character, and as as we mature, we get more and more aware that God is holy, right? And as we're maturing, we're also aware of our own sinful hearts before God and the distance and the gap between both. Well, what's in the middle is the cross. 
And as we mature both ways, the cross gets bigger if we're maturing properly. But what happens is, if we begin to fall into the trap of legalism, we start either pretending or performing. As we're aware of God's holiness, and we're like, "Uh uh-oh, he's really holy. Uh Uh-oh, I'm not. We get on the treadmill, right? Problem with the treadmill, you go nowhere, but you're working really hard. We're performing to earn God's favor. And when we see our own sin, and we recognize, oh man, this is bad, and we're not trusting in Christ, we're not knowing that it's taken care of on the cross, we begin to pretend, well, I'm not really that bad. I mean, God really doesn't really care about that. I thought about that thing. And those people are a lot worse than I am, right? We pretend that we're actually better than we are. And both are sin. We need to come back to the cross as believers in Christ and place it right there. That's how we approach God. We are rooted in God's acceptance through the cross of Jesus Christ. It is what He did, not what we do. It is His righteous work, His righteous standing. It is only Him that we can come before God. And if our righteousness is placed on what we do and not on Him, we'll fall into the trap of pretending and performing. And as a young boy, I thought that's how it was done. When you're bad, you go to somebody and you tell them, and they tell you what to do, and then it's okay. But the Bible says, no, God looks at the heart, and you need heart surgery. You need a whole new heart, and that only comes through Christ. A person cannot approach God through man-made traditions, and a person cannot approach God through rituals. And the last one is a person cannot approach God through morality. Through morality. This is our outward moral deeds apart from Christ will not bring us any closer to God. Okay, verses 17 through 23. And when leaving the multitude... He entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but it goes into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared right there that all foods were clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that's what defiles the man. For within Let's see, for from within, out of the heart of men proceed, here it goes, evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And all these things proceed from within and defile the man. So Jesus takes his disciples privately and he begins to explain the parable. And he's trying to help them understand because you have to understand they're Jews And they believe in this dietary code, right? I mean, Peter even said, man, I've never eaten anything that defiles a man. And so this is a really big deal for them. And they're really kind of confused right now, trying to figure out, wait a minute. My whole life I have been brought up that there are things that I eat and that's what defiles me. And he's saying, no, 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 no. He's saying, I want you to look at the heart. See, the Jew thought that their outward moral actions equaled to God being pleased with them. It's kind of like a parent that you get rewarded when you do good and you get spanked when you do bad. And they also thought that they were God's chosen people and because of that special choosing, they're automatically in the kingdom of God. 
And Jesus just kind of shatters the whole thing. And he says, wait a minute. I want you to go inside and look at the heart. He goes, I want you right now to stop and say, what's up with this first? And then he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to tell you what's in the heart of the natural man. And, he's, and he says, and this is the Pharisees I just spoke to. This is their heart, and this is your heart. Let me tell you, there's evil thoughts. This is evil reasonings within oneself. There's fornication and sexual immorality. There's thefts. The word is klepi, which means kleptomania. You're a thief, he says. There's murder. There's adulteries. There's coveting, which is greed. There's wickedness and malice. There's deceit. You're a liar. There's sensuality and lewdness. There's envy. I want something that somebody else has. There's slander, which is blaspheming God. There's pride and arrogance and haughtiness. And then he says there's foolishness. So when a person tries to live a moral life, and they're doing all this stuff for God without Christ, God looks at them and he sees a heart that's filled with all these things. Do you guys understand that? So when a person, we come before God without Christ, we stand condemned. Romans 10.3 puts it like this. This is Paul speaking about the Jews. He says, they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, so they sought to establish one of their own. And Jesus said it like this, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's the issue. We need righteousness. We have a very serious problem here, and it's a righteousness problem. God is telling us, if you're going to be with me, you need to to be perfect. That means perfectly righteous. But we can't. Because in our heart, resides all those, that whole list of things in in our natural heart. We can't do it. And so God says, well, I'm going to go ahead and take care of that for you. And we need something theologically that's known as passive righteousness. It's a righteousness not of ourselves. It's a righteousness that we are forgiven, not based on what we've done, but based on what God has done for us. Martin Luther put it like this. He says, it's called passive righteousness because we do not have to work for it but we receive it by faith. The person who wanders away from passive righteousness has no other choice but to live in their own works righteousness. This is how Paul put it in Romans 3. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. We need righteousness, not of our own. And God has given it to us in Christ. And when Christ lived that 33 perfect years, that's why he didn't just come on a Friday and and go to the cross that Friday and then raise on Sunday. He had to live the life because we're credited with that life. So when you receive Christ, you're not only forgiven for your sins, you're also given his life. And together, we stand absolutely justified before God. Now, my wife Karen had a really good friend and a co-worker and his name was Bill. And Bill was one of these people, guys, that, that's just a great, great guy. Loved his family, was a hard worker, was one of the nicest people I've ever met. Had many lunches with Bill and my wife when she was working for the county of Orange. Well, Bill, a few months ago, was driving his car, and he was killed in a car accident. And he's one of those people that's actually, I think, one of the nicest guys I've ever met, but as far as we know, he had never come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so I can say with some confidence, I don't know his whole life, that that moment he passed, he is not in the presence of God. He's not. And what we do in our heads is we sometimes think that God somehow has to grade on a curve, don't we? Nice people, they get to go to heaven. Bad people, you know, Osama bin Laden and Hitler and Stalin and all these evil people, they automatically go to hell. But nice people, you know, they they work hard, they're good Americans, they pay their taxes, they love their kids. God's got a special place. But Jesus just said, in the heart resides all these things, this list. And it's really hard for us as people because we all have friends and family where we think, wow, they were really nice people. I hope they're with God. And I can tell you with confidence without Christ, they will not see the kingdom of God. I want to read for you John 3.18. This is what it says. It says, he who believes in, in Jesus is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of of the only begotten Son of God. A person cannot approach God through morality. A person cannot approach God through man-made traditions. And you cannot approach God through rituals. Mark here does a shift. Three things we see. Now he's going to talk to you how we can approach God. This is the good news. I'm so glad he had this all together. (laughs) Because these three are really depressing. And I was like, man. And I said, oh, good. Okay, a person can approach God by humbly trusting Him. Now, as people, we come up with thousands of of ways that we can approach God. But here's a very clear one. Verses 24 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre. And when he entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. And after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, immediately she came and she fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Seraphonician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be, okay, he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she answered and said to him, Lord, she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having departed. Okay, these religious leaders had a faith that was not pleasing to God because it was based on their performance, their rituals, their man-made traditions, their own morality. And now Jesus escapes from where he's at and he's going to go from Decapolis to Tyre. That's about 50 miles, by the way. And it's all the way on the Mediterranean coast. It's a little island right off. And there was a siege rant that was built by Alexander the Great to get to Tyre. This is where Jesus goes. And in my mind, I'm thinking, he just wants to get away from all these religious guys, right? He wants to get a little downtime, a little bit of rest. But no sooner does he arrive, the reputation's already out. This man heals, and this man casts out demons. Well, there's a woman there. She's got a little baby girl. She knows that it's a demon. There's something weird with this thing. Isn't it weird how... You ever notice how the Bible just speaks, matter of fact, about, oh, yeah, I've got a demon. I mean, if somebody came to you and says, oh, yeah, by the way, my daughter has a demon, we'd be like, really? But here it's matter of fact because there is a spiritual world. And so this woman, breaking through all barriers, she comes to Jesus. She is desperate, man. She is absolutely so in love with her little girl. She's willing to break all protocol and get before this Jewish rabbi. By the way, 
Because she's Syrophoenician, she should not come in his presence. This is a Jewish rabbi. She's a woman. First of all, that's not right uh, in terms of coming before a rabbi. She's a pagan, so she's Gentile. And she knows that culturally this is not right to come into his presence because basically he would be defiled in her presence. But she pushes through. And immediately means as soon as she heard. As soon as she heard about him, boom, I'm on it. Now, what we're going to see here is that, that there are some things within this woman and the realities for us to approach God. And it looks like on the service, doesn't it, that Jesus insults her, right? He says, it's not right for me to, you know, give bread to, you know, to the dogs. I've I got to feed the children first. And, and she's like, what? Well, well here, here's the situation. In New Testament times, the idea of dog was an insult. And in fact, as the Jews called Gentiles dogs, and that was an insult. But the key to this understanding, it's, this is really a parable. Jesus is giving her a parable because the word he used for dogs in the Greek, it's puppies. And he basically says to her, let the little children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the puppies. So she's a mom. And she says, well, well Lord, even the puppies under the table, you know, they eat the children's crumbs too. And so what Jesus does is he's drawing her in with a parable and she gets it. She understands that he's saying that, that I'm, I'm coming to my people first. There's an order here. And I've been called, and it says in Matthew 15, that I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He's saying, I have to reach my people first. But she, here's faith, guys, and humility in this woman. She comes here believing. She's saying, Lord, I, I know that you're spiritual. I know that you're the man that can heal my daughter. And I know that there must be enough for everyone. So I'll just take the crumbs. You see the faith in that? She says, what all falls off the table? That's enough for me to believe. That I'll take the least that you got, that little crumb. And that little crumb from you, I believe, actually will heal my daughter. So this woman displays great humility before him. Instead of being offended by him calling her a dog, she humbles herself and she approaches him with humility and faith. So what Jesus does, he gives her a challenge and an offer. The challenge is to believe. And the offer is that if she will believe, she'll actually receive what she came for. And I see three things in a way that we can approach God. The first thing is faith. She absolutely believed that this is the man of God. Now, I don't know that she knows that he is the savior of the world yet, but she definitely believes that he's going to do the work and that he can save her daughter. And can I tell you, it takes faith, doesn't it, to approach God. And God has called us to have faith in his son, and this is exactly what she's doing. She believes. She's simply just simple faith. Second of all, she's humble. She's not like most Americans where we stand on our rights, right? Well, I've done all these things and I deserve this. No, that's not what she does. She goes, I've done nothing. I deserve nothing. But because of your goodness, I believe that you'll give me this. She's humble. And the third thing is, she's surrendered. This woman has been carrying around a, a, a major burden. Her daughter is controlled by an evil spirit. And she realizes, I can't carry it anymore. 
And I'm going to go to the one who can relieve me of that burden. And what did Jesus say? Come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden. I will give you rest. She had faith. She was humble. And she gives over the burden to the Lord. That's how we approach God. That's how we do it. We approach God with an open heart of humility. We approach God by believing that his son truly is the one who forgives. And we bring all that we are and all that we have to him. And we lay it down in faith there. And then he takes it. Three things we see with this woman. And so what does Jesus do? He says to her, because of this answer, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon having departed. A person can approach God by humbly trusting him. A person cannot approach God through rituals, man-made traditions, or morality. And the last thing we see is a person can approach God because he approached us. The reason we can even come to God is because he came to us. Look at the last part here, verses 31 through 37. And again, he went out from the region of Tyre and he came to Sidon, to the Galilee, within the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay hands on him. And Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself, and he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched on his tongue with saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said, Epaphita, that is, be opened. And his ears were open, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave him orders not to tell anybody, anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now, the Bible speaks very clearly that in eternity past, God decided that he was going to come to man. We know that in John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word became God. And then in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. We have access to God because God came to us. God saw the seriousness of the problem, and He broke into history. He broke into time and space, and He is here among us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus goes from Tyre, and he goes back down to this area of Decapolis. And as soon as he gets there, his disciples pull him away from the crowd to this man who's in need, right? Now, this is a deaf man, and he's also mute. That means he's, they say he has problems speaking. It probably just means he mumbles. He, he can't make clarity with his words, so he's deaf and mute. Now, it's interesting here when you look at the way Jesus heals this man, right? Up to this point, Jesus has not done anything real demonstrative. He speaks a word and people are healed. I mean, even with this woman we just saw, right, it's almost like he was holding back from doing anything from her. But here he's at, you know, hands in the ears and saliva on the tongue and moaning and all this kind of stuff. Why does he do that? Because he meets this man right where he's at. He can't hear. So he's showing him, I'm going to heal your ears. I'm going to fix your mouth. He meets him where he's at. And that's exactly what the Lord does with us. He will meet you exactly where you're at. You come as you are to Christ. And Jesus comes to him and just basically brings this to him. It's, it's nonverbal sign language for this man. And Jesus pulls him away from the crowd. He doesn't do it in front of everybody. Why is that? Because this man's been a spectacle his whole life. 
I bet you he got made fun of when he was just a kid all the way up. He's always been the one who was the spectacle. So Jesus does this as a private moment between him and this man. But guy, there is a key word here in this text that just blew my mind. And this is the key word for the whole section that we've been reading. It's the Greek word maligalos. And it's the word used for deaf. Mark put that word there for a specific reason. It's only found one other place in Scripture. It's found in Isaiah 35, verse 5. And I'd like you to see that. So turn to Isaiah 35. Now we need to understand in this day that when Jesus quoted the Hebrew Scriptures, he was quoting from the Greek Septuagint. They spoke Greek that, in that language. And so the Greek Septuagint, about 200 years earlier, had translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And so that word maligalos is, is in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 35, verses 4 and 5, says this, Say to those with filthful hearts, Be strong and do not fear. Your God will come, and He will come with vengeance and with divine retribution, and He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Well, when I read that, I thought, okay, I, I get the part about the eyes of the blind unopened and the deaf you know, being unstopped, but what about the vengeance part, <laughs> right? Jesus didn't come with divine retribution or vengeance. He came to take it. Do you see it? Jesus came to take the divine wrath of his Father. God should have come in divine retribution and wrath. He should have brought vengeance upon all mankind, but instead he sent his Son. And then in, I, and then in Isaiah 53, 7, it says this. It says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, and like a lamb that was led to slaughter, and like a sheep that was silent before its hearers, he did not open his mouth. Do you know right before Jesus went to the cross, he didn't say a word. He became mute just like this man so that we could call him king. He took the wrath of God. He took the vengeance so that we could claim his righteousness and not our own. You cannot get to God through religious rituals. Your man-made traditions, although pious, do not give you access to him. Your morality might be great, but without Christ, you will stand condemned. We need to go to the one and the only one who came to us first. Then we have access to the Father. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we see that it is not by works that we're saved, but only your grace. We see that you came to us to, to point the way. We see that you came to us to pay the price. Lord, we see that we must come to you with faith and humility, and a surrendered heart. And we recognize, Lord, that you took the shame that we deserve. We recognize, Lord, that our good works within themselves are not good, but it's only by the grace of God that we're saved. And so, Father, we give you our heart today. We offer our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen.